Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles now and let's turn together to the book of Colossians as we think about God revealed in Christ, the very subject of our surrender, the one to whom we must surrender. Unless we do, we don't understand what Christianity is really all about. We're going to continue what we began last week, so we'll review uh, quickly. A few of you may not have been here, and for those of you who were here, this is one of those things you want to review. It's fundamental, it's foundational, it's important uh, to all of our understanding of God. So it's a great thing to review. Uh, verse 15 says, He is the image, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The tragic shooting this week in the theater in Colorado at Aurora where 71 people were shot, approximately 12 were killed uh, at midnight at the showing of the new Batman movie, Dark Knight. Uh, that, that shooting was carried out by a young man by the name of James Holmes who was 24 years of age and a graduate student in neuroscience, apparently from a well-to-do family, uh, apparently had a very good education, but after the shooting, he referred to himself as the Joker, which is one of the characters in the, the Batman series. Put a lot of thought into that uh, thing, as we know now, as he booby-trapped his apartment and with all kinds of bombs and tripwires uh, to kill whoever might come to his apartment after it was all over. And so they've cleared all of that out now, and they're still investigating these things. But many questions come to mind when we're struck with something like that. At the top of the list are at least two questions. One is this, what evil lurks in the heart, in the heart of a human being that would cause him to senselessly and indiscriminately and maliciously in a premeditated way, because this took months of planning, as he had received packages from the internet to make his bombs and to get his ammunition and to buy his guns and to figure out exactly what he was going to do. What evil is there? And open fire on, on little children and, and others that you, you didn't even know in a theater like that. What evil lurks in the heart of a human being that would cause them to do that? The second question is, how do you make sense of all of this for a watching world and for the families who have victims and who lost lives in that? What do you do about the grieving families? Well, President Obama visited with us this week and he had to change his speech. Uh, he had a political speech all prepared and of course, as this news broke, he changed it all, cut it down to about eight minutes and focused on um, the grieving situation that was there. He realized that this is a time of prayer and reflection, that what he had to say politically would not begin to touch that event. In fact, would, would seem out of place and incongruent with that tragedy. Mitt Romney joined him in expressing grief for the family and prayers and support and both the Democrat and the Republican parties in their radio messages every week changed their radio messages as well. Put aside all the politics and that's been flying out there realizing this is inconsequential and to express sympathy for the families and, and prayers and support for them. And yet I did not have to change my message. <laughs> they had to change theirs but I didn't have to change mine at all. And because the reason is that the only answers to be found to these kinds of questions are in the gospel. It's in what Jesus Christ has to say. 
Government, we can talk about it all day long, what needs to change, but it cannot touch the deepest needs that exist in the heart of people. It can't answer the question of evil that every now and then shows its bald face in events like this. And so we, we come to this passage of Scripture realizing that we have got to get Jesus right. God made us in His image and He made us for His purpose. Isn't that what verse 16 says? For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So we know why we're here. We know that God made us in His image and for His purposes. But we also know, obviously, something terrible has gone wrong. Every now and then we get a glimpse of just how bad it is. Look at verse 21 of this chapter. And you, says Paul, referring to those Colossians, and, and we also are included in this you. You. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. There we are. The problem with this guy is that he was hostile in mind and that hostility in mind had, had gotten to such a pitch that now he committed this evil deed. But I don't want you to think that he is a worse sinner than you. I want you to understand that what's so unsettling about this is that the root problem that existed in that young man's life is the same root problem that exists in all of our lives. Now we, we have not given it its head. We've not been turned over to that sin and it's not found that depth of expression uh, in our lives. But nevertheless, it's the same problem. It is a sinner that is actually unleashed in all of its sinfulness uh, in, in a horrible act like this. And so we also, you've got to realize this, that, that people aren't just going through life kind of good and some people are worse than others. The Bible says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, that is the natural mind as it is before God. Unconverted. It is hostile to Him. And this hostility must be overcome. And the only way that it can be overcome is by the work of Jesus Christ. And so, this is what we're talking about here. In this great Christological passage in the New Testament, it begins in verse, in verse 15 with who Jesus Christ is and what he's all about. And this is something that's being threatened here because as, as Stott says, it's important to realize that the reason why Paul affirms this mighty truth to the Colossians is more practical than philosophical. He writes to Christians who can honestly say, Christ is my helper, yet who have been thrown into confusion by teachers who confidently assert that this is not enough for effective living in God's world. Imagine saying that Jesus Christ is good, but he's not good enough. That he isn't sufficient for you. See, that was the claim. There's something lacking in Jesus. There's a lacking of sufficiency in Christ. Well, that's not Christianity. That's a departure from Christianity. And so in the very beginning, Paul wants to address the problem of the church at Colossae by establishing the preeminency of Christ and by establishing his preeminency, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for all of life. So he says that when we consider this God, think of who he is in verse 16. By him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. So 
let's not separate Jesus, as we talked about last week, the spiritual, the Lord of the church and the head of the church, from the world and the cosmos. He's the cosmic Christ. He also created everything, all the worlds, all the planets, everything that's going on, everything in your everyday life. He's Lord of all that. There's no part of life over which Christ is not sovereign and Lord. And it's so easy to pigeonhole Christ and make him just Lord of our religious life and then live our other parts of our life as though Christ were not involved in those areas or sufficient for those areas in some way. And so this is what Paul is trying to help us with here. And one of the big strategies of Satan as we've seen uh, over and over again is to confuse us concerning the person of Christ. And so, this isn't new. We looked at church history, how years, in the 4th century, there was this great debate between Athanasius and Arius over uh, the person of Christ. Arius, who was just an elder there in the church at Alexandria, Egypt, said that Jesus was made of similar substance. Homoiousius, remember the iota. Homoiousius means similar substance. In other words, he was created, God made him out of something similar to him, but Homoiousis. But on the other hand, Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria, said that is dead wrong. He is of the same substance as the Father. He is equal with God. Of the same being is how the, the Nicene Council in 325 actually ended up saying it. So he's homoousius. The only difference between those two, as your introduction says, is, is that iota, that one little Greek letter. But what a world of difference it makes in our understanding. So we looked at that and we realized this is not anything new. We still see it being played out in the Jehovah Witnesses who deny the godness of Jesus. Played out in the Mormon, Mormons, another uh, major religious group today in America who do not believe in the divinity and equality of Jesus with the Father. So... As Stott says, what was happening in Colossae was that the Christians seemed ready to deny the sufficiency of Christ for all their spiritual needs and therefore, in practice, to deny the supremacy of Christ to which they were already committed. Because I mean, I'm committed to the supremacy of Christ. I believe he's the Lord. Well, as someone has said, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You can't have it both ways. He's, he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. To say that he's Lord is to say that he's sovereign and in control of everything in my life. And so that touches upon his sufficiency. So we looked last week first at this, our God concealed. We love and worship an invisible God. Jesus, verse 15 says, is the image of the what? Invisible God. And so our God is invisible. It was a problem in the Old Testament. It was even a problem in the New Testament, remember, as Philip is asking Jesus in deep conversation, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Have I been with you, Philip, so long and you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus replied. Saying that, that he was, again, equal with the Father. He was the manifestation of the Father. And so we notice that many theological errors in the first place have come from human ideas about the nature of God. Whenever we just want to say, well, I'd like to think about God like this. And we're not reading the scriptures, we're not carefully exegeting them and seeing what they have to teach. We come up with our own ideas about God. And many heresies have just begun there, with our own thoughts, our own logic. Well, I think it seems to me that, that God should be like this. We have to be careful with this. We're not allowed to go beyond scripture and invent our own ideas about God. That's nothing less than image building in, in a verbal and mental way. 
So we must be sure that we're worshiping the God of the Bible as he's revealed him. John knows this is a problem and so in John 1.18 he begins his gospel this way. No one has ever seen God. He confesses it. Let's just be honest right to begin with, he says. Again, there have been theophanies, appearances of God in the Old Testament, but no one has ever seen God as he is. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a single-celled organism like a paramecium being able to comprehend a human being? Just not possible. There's no way that paramecium, I don't care how many years you send him to school, <laughs> is ever going to be able to start to comprehend a human being. We are so much higher on the order of created beings than the paramecium. The paramecium will never be able to even imagine that such a thing as a human being exists in his little tiny one-celled brain, if he has a brain. Okay? And that's not even a fair comparison. God is so much further above us then we are above the paramecium. But there's no way we could ever know and see God as he is. All we can do is approximate him. But the wonderful news is he has manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus becomes a man, we see the fullness of God bodily and we're able to see as much of God as we can grasp, as much as he wants us to know of him, is revealed in Jesus Christ. So what we say is Jesus is all God, but not all of God. We know there's more to God in terms of Trinity and being than in Jesus, but we know that Jesus is all God. He's not half God, half man. He's as much God as if he'd not been man, as much man as if he'd not been God. He's the God bodily revealed. And so... John 1.18, he goes on to say, No one has seen God at any time. God, who is at the Father's side, that would be Jesus, He has made Him known. So Jesus' ministry was all about making Him known. Hebrews 1 through 3, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, uh, David read it earlier, says the same thing long ago. At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Very similar language to what we read in Colossians. Creator of all things, upholding all things together by the word of his power. So Jesus is, is God's final word and all the word is doing is pointing to him. The second thing that we notice is that God has revealed himself by his spirit in the revelation of his word. So he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word incarnate. He's God incarnate but he's also the word incarnate or we could say the law incarnate as well because he perfectly fulfills it in himself both by his perfect life and his substitutionary death on the cross. But God has revealed himself by his spirit in the revelation of the word. So we read 1 Peter 1, 23-25 um, where it says that we have been born again not of imperishable seed but of not of perishable seed but of imperishable how? Through the living and abiding word of God. So the word of God goes forth and by that word we are transforms. It's the spirit's work to use God's word to reveal Christ and his purposes to us. And so, this passage is trying to make clear who Jesus is. That's the starting point. If you get this wrong, everything else is wrong. Because Jesus plus anything, or Jesus minus anything, is a cult. That's a cult. So you've got to get Jesus right, or you don't have anything. 
And so, uh, when you look at this verse, if you look at verse 15, notice the He is. Because this is what it's about. It's about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Or look at verse 17. And He is before all things. And in verse 18, He is the head of the church. The second part of verse 15, He is the beginning, the firstborn. So, this is all about who Jesus is. Because that's the question in the church at Colossae. They were watering him down. They were making him less than he is. And today, many people are happy to talk about a Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of Scripture. It's not the biblical Jesus. And this is where the problem comes in and what we've got to see. So, uh, we, we see this invisible God. Our God is concealed. We love and worship an invisible God. But the second thing I want us to go to this morning now is our God revealed. And of course, you've been anticipating this all along. Our God revealed in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so Colossians 1.19, we're in Colossians 1. If you go down to verse 19, notice what it says. For in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. Or if you go on to chapter 2 and look down um, to verse, uh, verse 9... It says, for in him, that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. See? How can you read passages like that and think that Jesus isn't God? Or that he's less than God? These are clear, clear passages uh, that, uh, that state this. Now, of course, if you take a, a phrase or a word out of context, then it may appear it may at first appear that he may be less. And, and it's that kind of thing that happens in verse 15 where it says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Ooh, firstborn of all creation. Does that mean he was born? Just, you know, like made just before us, ahead of us, but still made? Well, it, it just seems to say that if you just read it outside of the larger context of this. And, and so it's easy to turn the whole Bible on its head by taking one verse and, and misreading it, taking it out of context, making it what's, what's called a proof text. And that's what the Jehovah Witnesses and others do with a verse like this. So we need to understand what it says. God is revealed in Christ. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Him. So the first thing we notice is that He is the sufficient Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image there in, in the Greek is literally icon. Where we get our, we just carried it right on over in the English and in computers today, we all have icons on our desktops. So icon just means an image for something. And Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. So think of something that is on a coin. That's how it was used in the New Testament days. An image, whose image is on this coin, Jesus asked the disciples. Well, it was the image of Caesar. So Jesus rendered Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So that's what image means. Or if you look in a mirror, you see a reflection, you see an image. And, and so the word image is used like that, as a reflection in a mirror, as an impression on a coin. But what this is talking about is not physical likeness. It's not saying that God looks like Jesus in some image way, the way the face on the coin might resemble the president, or the way the reflection in the mirror uh, resembles physically the person who's being reflected back. It's not talking about physical reflection. What do you think of when you think of God? I like to say God doesn't need to move anywhere to be everywhere, because He is everywhere. 
And he's everywhere present at every point. It's not like his big toe is in China and part of him is here. He's everywhere present at every point and he doesn't have to move anywhere to be everywhere. So you know, when we try to even visualize God, it, it's just impossible for our finite minds to comprehend something that is infinite, right? We just can't do it. And so we, we realize that. These are our limitations. Uh, so when we're talking about Jesus being the image of God, we're not talking about physical or material likeness, but rather we're talking about his nature and his, uh, his essence is expressed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In other words, as we watch Jesus in the Gospels, he's manifesting the essence and the nature of God in who he is in what he's doing. That's why we should study the Gospels very carefully. That's why there are four Gospels, you know, instead of just one. It's like they're four times more important, if you will, simply because in the Gospels, there we see the living Christ moving through time, interacting with human beings, doing things that is clearly expressing to us what God is like. Now, the epistles take that and, theologi and theologically break it down and, and make points about it, as Paul is doing here, but the Gospels give us that that bare bones action of Jesus in the flesh doing stuff. This is what God is like. This is how he speaks to people. This is how he treats people. And this is helpful to, to, to get a glimpse of how God manifests himself in Jesus Christ. So all of his life and ministry was designed to be a manifestation of God. And what I want us to do is quickly look at that in the Gospel of Mark. So go to, go to the Gospel of Mark. And I want us to take three different places. Mark chapter 3 is the first one. This is where he goes in to the synagogue. He's going into the synagogue. It's the Sabbath day. And he enters the synagogue in verse 1. And a man is there with a withered hand. A withered hand. Just imagine a hand that's all paralyzed and, and bound up there. And, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Do you see how their religion had gotten in the way? That would be considered breaking the Sabbath. If you heal somebody. And so they don't care about the man with a withered hand. All they want to do is catch Jesus at something wrong. They can just catch him at something so they can have something against him. Do you see? Hostile in mind. You, you don't have to have a, a James there in, in Colorado to see this. You can see it in the religious folk in the New Testament. And so look, look what happens. Jesus knows what's in their heart. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Hmm. They were silent. And they didn't know how to answer that question because it, it's not how they phrased the question. They, they weren't sure what to do with that. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He does the same thing today. When he looks around and he sees people who fail to, to trust him, to believe who he is and what he can do. And so, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Well, that's the very thing he couldn't do. He couldn't, that's, that's the problem. I can't stretch out my hand. But he says to him, stretch out your hand. And the Bible says there, he stretched it out and his hand was restored. In the very act of believing Christ and doing what Christ said, in that word, to do, was the power of life. Stretch it out 
and it was stretched out. And so God says to Lazarus, who is dead, Lazarus, come forth. And the one who could not come forth in his own strength or ability had no innate possible way of doing that. He comes forth. This is the God who speaks worlds into existence. He can speak to human hearts and change them. He can speak to lives and transform them. But, but we're so slow to have confidence in the gospel that it's able to do this kind of thing. And so, clearly... Jesus at that point manifests himself to be God, the healer of all. Now let's go a little bit further uh, and let's look at another example in, in the next chapter, chapter 4. This is a different scene now, towards the end of chapter 4 actually. And look at verse 35. One day, on that day, evening had come. He'd been teaching all day and ministering all day. He said, let's go to the other side of, of the lake. And, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. And just, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Have you ever been in a boat that was filling up with water? It's kind of a scary thing, you know? Especially if you're way offshore. That's one thing if you're, you can see land, and you think, well... You know, worst comes to worst, I can swim to shore. But, but to be out somewhere and your boat's filling up with water and you realize we can't make it to shore. This is the, this is, this is the time before life preservers too, okay? I'm sure they had some kind of, a, hopefully, a piece of wood or something to float on, like Paul did when they, he was shipwrecked, found some wood. But they didn't have life preservers yet. They haven't invented those yet. And so, uh, basically, uh, you, know, you just might die if your boat sank and you're in the middle of the, in the, middle of the lake or sea. And so, it's, it's what a tragedy, we're going to die and here's Jesus right here with us. How, how terrible is that? So they wake him up and say, Lord, the, the boat's already filling up with water. They, they're, they're trying to get his attention there. He's, he's sleeping. He was stern, the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you care about us? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So notice this. It wasn't just that he speaks to the wind and the sea, and they obey him. The waves, maybe five, eight-foot waves coming up, crash down, and it's like glass. It's like a hot afternoon, just glass. And that wind that was howling and blowing, it's just gone. They're just sitting there. Boat's not even moving in the water. A calm and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. The word is stronger. Than, the fear that they had of the storm was nothing compared with the fear they now had of Jesus. And so they asked a question and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You say. Well, he's the one who made the sea and the wind. He's the one who holds all things together by the word of his power. Say, in, in, in Colossians, Paul is bringing the theology to bear on the story. He's the one who in his flesh manifested himself as God. Yes, I made the sea. I made the one. I made this planet. I can say to the wind, stop, and it stops. I can say to the sea, be calm, and, and it's calm. I'm God in the flesh. Only God could do something like that. 
And they were greatly afraid. Now, let's take one last one. And perhaps this one is the most dramatic in chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1 where Jesus heals this man with a demon who lives in this area of the Gerasim, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So this is Gentile territory. Everything about this story is unclean. It's Gentile territory. Graveyards are involved because this demoniac lives in this graveyard and, and to be even around a grave and touch his tomb, you are unclean for so many days. Unclean Gentile, unclean graveyard, unclean pigs. Jews didn't raise pigs like this and so you know, they were considered unclean, anybody who worked with pigs. So unclean pigs, everything's unclean about this whole story. Who would even want to go here? But Jesus goes here. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. This guy had supernatural strength being this demon-possessed guy, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. The, the idea of being bound is, is a word used to uh, bind animals that you're trying to tame. He wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Self-destructive. And when he saw Jesus from afar he ran and fell down before him. The word falling down before him is the word used to express worship. Because these, these demons knew who Jesus was. And while they didn't love him, there's coming a day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus versus demons, no contest. And so it falls down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Recognizing who he was and his authority. I swear to God by me, swear to God, do not torment me, literally is what he says. I adjure you, I swear to you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was a Roman troop, a large troop, 5,600 soldiers basically constituted a legion. And so he said, we are legion, suggesting that perhaps there are 5,600 unclean spirits in this man. But someone said he wasn't just a split personality, he was a shattered personality. Can you imagine 5,600 spirits? Unclean. So, so this man was in the grips of a legion of demons, not soldiers, however powerful you might imagine a Roman soldier to be. But these were spirit beings. That, that make human strength nothing. And here was a man bound in the power of these demons, falling before Jesus. So <clears throat> he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. And now a great herd of pigs, again unclean, were feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now there's a place uh, near this area where this can be still seen and visioned as happening. 
steep incline into the sea. So 2,000 pigs. Do you know how much money that was? In that day, it is incredible. This was a huge loss financially for this area. This city was, was one of the ten cities in the Decapolis, the Gentile ten cities on the east side of the Jordan. So the herdsmen fled and they told it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened and they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. See? After the peace be still, a great calm. See the parallel? After Jesus cast the demons out, we see a picture of discipleship. Here is a man sitting there at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. And they were what? Afraid. Just like the disciples. Who is this? That even the wind obeyed. They're more afraid of Jesus now than they are of the storm. And these people, oh, they were afraid of that demoniac. But they're more afraid now of Jesus. The demoniac could never cause them to lose 2,000 swine, pigs, and what an economic loss that was. And who knows how in the world was he able to cure this man that we thought was way beyond the hope and possibility of anyone ever being healed. And so they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Can you imagine that? Instead of saying, you must be the Messiah. You must be God in the flesh. Well, only God could do something like this. Instead of saying, oh, we see what you did, but please leave. We beg you to leave. People still do the same thing today. They hear the wonderful works of Jesus. They understand who He is and what He's done. Still they're afraid. Still they would beg Jesus to leave them alone. Let them live their life on their own terms. Don't interfere now you might say that Jesus is being insensitive here to these pigs. 2,000 of them are destroyed. And no doubt that was an economic downturn. But, but the thing about it is, what Jesus is clearly revealing in this event is that one man's life, one man's soul is of far more value than, than all the economic policies that you might think about. Uh, and all of the disturbances that it might cause in a city. The real story here is the man who was healed and saved out of the bondage of his sin and satanic oppression. That's the story as far as God is concerned. And so this man of course is grateful. <clears throat> and so he was getting into the boat and the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Oh Lord that I might just be with that I might follow you. See that's discipleship. You see who did the following in the New following in the New Testament we talk about follow up because we see people make decisions for Jesus and they never seem interested in it anymore. But when somebody's really saved, they're begging to follow Jesus Christ. Nobody's having to talk them into it or instruct them to do so because that's what Christianity is. Except you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And so this man was ready to follow Jesus anywhere. But notice what Jesus says to him. He did not permit him. But said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord, that's God, has done for you. You see? Go back to these ten cities where I'm not going to be able to come. They're Gentile cities. And so the first evangelist appointed in the Gospel of Mark is a Gentile 
former demon-possessed guy. You go tell your friends and your family and all of them how much the Lord has done for you. Notice, and how He has had mercy on you. And He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. You see? Go tell him what the Lord has done for you. He told them how much Jesus had done for him. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord. He is God. And so clearly his message was Christ. And he went and began to proclaim all of this. And everyone marveled at what he had to say. Now the last thing that I want us to see here is that Jesus is the complete Christ. The firstborn of all creation. He's the complete Christ. Firstborn is prototokos. Prototokos can either mean first in terms of time, like my daughter had twins, Ben and Hallie, and was Hallie born first? Yeah, Hallie was first by just a few minutes, maybe a minute or so, something like that. So Hallie was like first, and then and Ben was right there, so it's like the same time as the Caesarean section. But anyway, Hallie was first, and then Ben was there. That's first in time. Well, there's also first in rank, like, like the one who is preeminent. And so what happens in the Old Testament is the firstborn son ends up getting the, the inheritance, right? Because he's the preeminent one. That's just the way it was, the way the law was set up in the Old Testament. All right? So think of firstborn. Uh, the firstborn began to take on the meaning not only of born first in time, but also the whole idea of being the one who is, who is preeminent, firstborn above all the others, that the chief heir of all the father had. It became to mean that. Okay? So, for example, in Exodus 4.22, Israel is called God's firstborn. Well, God never actually, obviously, had a child, but, but that's a term, and everybody knew what that meant. It meant the nation was to inherit much from God. Israel was his firstborn. Um, so when the Bible says that Jesus is prototokos, it's another way of saying that he is the father's heir. Or as David says in Psalm 89 verse 27, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So again, he's not talking about time because who he's talking about wasn't the first king. He's, but I'm going to make him my firstborn, meaning he is going to be my heir, the one who I regard as my firstborn. And so Jesus has ever been the heir of God. He's the one who by eternal generation, is the way uh, we state it theologically, by eternal generation the, the Son has always proceeded from the Father and he's always been the heir, the prototokos of God. Not that he ever had a beginning in time because the Bible says he created all things and how can he who created all things create himself? And so the reality is he has always been, he's equal with the Father and he's the complete Christ. Lord of creation or firstborn of all creation. Some translations have firstborn over all creation because that's the idea of prototokos, firstborn. It is, it is the heir over all things. And really the context of, of verse 16 and 17 points to that as he's the maker of all things and all things are made for him. So he's the heir of it all. The image of the firstborn, the in, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the first part of that verse really speaks to us about 
his connection with the Father, doesn't it? That he's the image of the Father, one with God. But the second part of that verse speaks to Christ's relationship to us. The firstborn of all creation, that he's the heir of all creation. And we are part of that creation that he's made. And he's made us for himself. So you might say, well, what kind of God is it that, that makes us for himself in this kind of a world? And, and things like happen this week happen. What kind of God is this? It's a God who goes to the cross. See, Jesus comes into this world. He's not watching it from an armchair in heaven somewhere. He comes into this world in the person of a man. He lives a perfect life that God requires of you. He suffers on the cross for all of the shame, the sin, the heartache, and all that has gone on in this world. He has entered the pain and the suffering of this world. He's not watching it somewhere else. And when we think of this tragedy, we have to remember the cross. It's the great centerpiece of any of, of any theodicy, any explanation of evil has to have Christ on the cross as the explanation because as John Stott said how can we believe in a God apart from the cross? In this evil world if it were not for the cross we would not have any comprehension of how to explain the bad things that happen. But we know that the sin and the demonic oppression uh, and influence that we see in our world around us is because of our rebellion against God. Hostility of mind. God's overcome all of that in the gospel. So today, you either hear that with joy and with gladness of heart and you embrace Christ or you do what many others did. It just makes you afraid. And you just want Christ to go away because you don't want Him interfering with your life and how you're living and what you're doing. But that is a horrible position. That is, that is the way of death. Would you bow with me? Father, we're so grateful to you that you've made it so clear in the gospel. We know that there is no other hope for us. You made us in your image and you've provided for us everything that we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that in ourselves we are sinners and our minds are naturally hostile uh, against you because we want to go our own way, do our own thing, be our own God. But we thank you, Father, for your, the change that you've made in us. And that now we, we love you, we adore you. You are the God who is so great and we just delight in you. And Father, I know there are some who are here today who have never savingly committed themselves to you. Still afraid of trusting you fully. I pray, Father, that you'd break through all of that right now today. And that they would place all of their faith and all of their hope and all of their confidence in you alone to save them and to change their life. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing. We ask that you'll continue to do it now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let us all stand and let us declare as, uh, what we have already heard in this sermon. The beauty of Christ. How wonderful his salvation is, how complete and perfect and joyful he is, joyous he is to the, to the believer. Let's proclaim, O oh Lord, you're beautiful. Face is all I see.